Hello, everybody. Andrew Holacek here. I am really delighted to be able to spend some time with a, an incredible researcher, scholar, friend, um, Dr. Judson Brewer, who I had the wonderful opportunity of hanging out with um, a couple years ago or so. I will introduce, as usual, with a somewhat formal um, bio, and then we're going to launch into what I am sure will be a very compelling um, discussion on the, the roots of addiction, um, because Judson is one of the world's leading authorities on this topic. So here we go. So Judson Brewer, MD, PhD, is a thought leader in the field of habit change and the science of self-mastery, having combined over 20 years of experience with mindfulness training with the scientific research therein. The Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Director of Research and Innovation at Brown University Center for Mindfulness, he has developed clinically proven app-based training to help people with smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. He's the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked, and How We Can Break Bad Habits. So, Judson, thanks so much for taking the time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule to check in with us. I, I'm still very... Um, reflect very fondly of the time I met you when you were out here in Boulder after you presented at Naropa University. I, you know, Justin gave a, con a lecture in the Varela lecture series at Naropa, and then we had a really wonderful opportunity to um, play in Jordan Qualia's uh, virtual reality lab, where um, in addition to some of the stuff that Jordan and I had worked on, we, we basically just had a whopping good time playing with some VR games. Um, and so <laughs> it was fun. It was, it was a total hoot. It was a total hoot. Um, and so, gosh, there, there's so much I want to unpack with you, but I, I want to start with something that hit me just this morning that we can probably dovetail back into. I started watching a little bit of the, the Mueller uh, you know, uh, report, uh, the testimony of this happening on the Hill. And one thing that, that I do that, that we could, talked very, very briefly about that ties into, um, honestly, uh, I, I think a very skillful way of working with addiction is what I do when I'm listening to something charged like that, whether it was the Kavanaugh hearings or this morning, the Mueller hearings, or sometimes I'll do it. And again, I, I don't mean to offend anybody, but I'm politically uh, inclined as a Democrat. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll watch something like Fox News and Sean Hannity as a way to work with this as well. Um, is, is I actually watch, I'll start the event, it gets me all sucked in, I get all, in a really deep sense, kind of non-lucid, and this is what I want to unpack with you, Johnson, I get swept up, and then what I'll do is I'll, I'll hit the mute button, and I'll watch the display without sound, and I have found it to be a really interesting exercise, and also a bit of a metaphor um, for things, in fact, like meditation, where uh, sometimes I'll, I'll talk to my meditation students as like, well, watch your mind without sound. Um, let the display arise. Notice your tendency to get caught up, swept up in it. And in the context of um, our nightclub, watch how we get non-lucid to it. But I, you talk about it so beautifully, Judson, with this idea of functional decoupling. Um, and so whether we launch with that or whether we just launch with um, – the extraordinary practicality of your work and how it's based uh, not only in, in rigorous science, but also conjoined, and this is what attracts me to it so deeply, with uh, Eastern principles of, of thought and meditation, Buddhism and the like. Um, mm. so, so, yeah, I would say let's launch with that and then we can get pragmatic afterwards. Perfect. Okay, cool. 
So talk to us a little bit about the importance of functional decoupling. It sounds like such an intimidating term, but I think when people understand it, they realize that, whoa, this is something that's really user-friendly that can save me a heap of trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it, it can be an intimidating concept, but basically the way, the way that we look at this is that we can get caught up in our experience. And so you can think of that as, as unconscious coupling, <laughs> so to speak, where <laughs> we inadvertently get sucked into something like, you know, oh, I can't believe that person has that view as in it, they don't, or, oh, that person shares the same view that I do. And then we start ranting about somebody else that doesn't share the same view. So there are many, many ways that we can get caught up in our, you know, basically in ourselves. And, and a very similar way to, simple way to think of this is we take things personally. We say, yeah. oh, you know, oh, I can relate to that or I can't relate to that. We hold on to the things that we can relate to and we push away the things that we can't relate to. And both of those have an energetic quality of movement as in hold on, pull toward and push away. So there's, there's this push and pull that comes with that. And that is really the root of addiction, that push and pull. I couldn't agree more. In fact, you know, one of the things I wanted to um, play with you with a little bit here, Judson, and I will just give readers the, the briefest sense of your remarkable book, um, Creating Mind, where in part one, I, I just want to give them a sense of what you talk about and, and then kind of zip it down into the foundations, which is you talk about addiction to technology, addiction to ourselves, addiction to distraction, addiction to thinking and, and um, addiction or addicted to love. And to me, when I cascaded through these chapters, which again, I found extraordinarily um, provocative and practical, I started to look just like you were talking about here. And this is what I really want to unpack with you. It's like, okay, what's the common denominator? What, what, are, what is the fundamental ingredient that underlies all these addictions? And honestly, I think you just nailed it, is, is this addiction to movement. Um, in so many ways, I know my teacher, Pula Perpiche, uh, once said that, you know, we have a, a very foundational um, habit issue around movement. He doesn't use the word addiction, but it, you can certainly join it with that, that our fundamental addiction is not so much to stillness, but it is to movement. And, and the way I play with this, Judson, and this is, I'd love to unpack this with you, is that this is, you know, kind of a, a way to explore uh, non-lucidity because, you know, when we met last year and what I'm riffing on now is how we can use the principles, the phenomenology of non-lucidity in the dream state um, as a way to understand how it is that we go non-lucid to um, experience altogether. And the notion that you write about in your scientific papers, this uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about this, the swept up continuum, um, mm -hmm. how, it, how it is that, that we just get seduced, we get hooked into movement. It's almost as if consciousness itself is a kind of movement motion detector. And this is one of the things that really comprises non-lucidity in the dream state is, or even in the meditative state. You know, thought, um, as you know, in the Vajrayana language, is actually referred to as movement of mind. Mm. And we, we get swept up into this movement of mind. We get hooked into it. And so talk a little bit more about this kind of foundational addiction that we have to, to, to movement or motion altogether. Yeah, so let's talk experientially, and also we can talk a little bit about some of the 
consistent neuroscience findings that are in the field. Uh, and maybe start with the latter. There are, you know, when I was looking through the literature to find commonalities around addictions, you know, people have studied everything from cocaine to heroin to gambling to chocolate, you know, and the only consistent brain region or network that seems to be activated when people are shown pictures or, or cues or even fed chocolate. Uh, is the default mode network, which is a self-referential brain network. So it, you know, this comes up perhaps as a coincidence or perhaps not because this network gets activated whenever we are relating to something. And specifically, my lab was really interested in determining what that relationship means. And so we did some neurophenomenologic studies to line up people's subjective experience with their brain activity, and in particular in a hub of the default mode network called the posterior cingulate cortex. Mm -hmm. And we use experienced meditators because they tend to be able to report on their own subjective experience better than folks that haven't been paying attention to their subjective experience. Yeah. And we found something really interesting, which was that the more caught up people were in their experience, the more their default mode network was active, in particular mm -hmm. the posterior cingulate. So things like, uh, you know, being swept away or identified with, uh, you know, activate the posterior cingulate when we're regretting the past, when we're worrying about the future. So getting caught up in rumination with depression or perseveration with anxiety, those activate the posterior cingulate cortex. When we're feeling guilty, you know, all of these things activate the posterior cingulate cortex. And what we found was not only was that brain region activated when people are getting caught up, but even when they were trying to do things. For example, there was somebody <laughs> in one of our studies who, you know, he was looking at the, we were showing people feedback from their brain activity in real time. Right. And he said, oh, you know, I, I tried to look at it harder. <laughs> How, you know, awareness is awareness. Awareness isn't moving. It's just awareness. And so this person in that movement of trying actually was activating his posterior cingulate cortex, which, you know, when at the end of the day, what it turns out is it's, it's this contracted or closed down quality that comes with force or comes with getting caught up in a craving or comes with getting becoming identified with something or that comes with being caught up in worry. And so that that contraction from a phenomenologic standpoint is a marker of, oh, I am here because this contraction says this is me as compared to just awareness, which is, you know, just awareness. <laughs> so that contracted quality kind of gives people an identification around, okay, this is me, and then outside of this contraction is the rest of the world. So when people let go, when they were deep in concentration, when they were practicing loving kindness, when they were moving outside into a more open quality of experience and just resting in awareness, their posterior cingulate cortex was getting really, really quiet. And so it seems that this movement in particular, that's correlated with a subjective sense of self is this movement, you know, of this contracted quality where yeah. you know, we're yeah. holding on or something is threatening us 
So we contract around, you know, it's like, oh, I don't like that. And so we're going to kind of protect ourselves. And there's this contraction that comes with that as compared to when we're not identified or when we're not taking something personally, there's more of an open quality when we're just resting in awareness. And I would guess this winds up pretty well with the lucid state. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, this goes so deep, you have no idea. I mean, so many things to say here, Justin. One is that my favorite running definition of meditation these days, and I'm sure this will resonate with, with your experience as a practitioner, is meditation is habituation to openness. And that wow, what, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, really, it really goes a long way. And especially when you realize that openness is a synonym for emptiness, then it really takes on a lot of chops. But, mm. but to me, the reason I find this so compelling is that when we're, when we're engaged in the practices of meditation, and again, um, this is one of the u truly unique contributions of your work, is this joining of um, science with uh, meditative tradition, is that by being invited to stay open, which is what meditation uh, obviously does, um, in a certain sense, it creates a heightened contrast medium. It, it, it allows us to therefore see qualities of uh, contraction that we haven't seen before. And so it's, mm -hmm. all, it's, it's simultaneously um, diagnostic and prescriptive. It will show us how it is that we continually refer experience onto self, therefore actually generating the sense of self from that very um, reference and contraction. And therefore it's, it's prescriptive in that it also shows us then what we could possibly explore to reduce the, the pinch. And it's like I sometimes say, you know, we're, we're constantly pinching ourselves and looking elsewhere for the prick in both senses yeah. of the word, but we're fundamentally, we're the ones that are doing this. And so this quality okay. of mood, no, go ahead, please. I was going to just add one piece. I'm going to, I would suggest that it's diagnostic, prescriptive, and it's also the treatment. Oh, beautiful. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Because here, and we can, we can get into this now or later, but basically our brains learn based on rewards, you know, cause and effect. So we do something and we either get rewarded or punished. And if we're, if we're rewarded, we do it again. If we're punished, we stop doing it, right? This is positive and negative reinforcement, the old, oldest, uh, most well-characterized learning process in science. And actually the Buddhists <laughs> figured this out 2,500 years ago in what they called dependent origination. But that reward piece, if we just simply look at what it feels like to be closed versus yeah. what it feels like to be open, it's a no-brainer for our brain. Our brains, you know, they invariably pick open because it feels better. So not only diagnostic and prescriptive, but perhaps even curative. Yeah. I, mean, I might not go that far, but, you know, moving in the direction of helping us uh, treat the affliction of self. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. And, and really, to me, it's like, you know, in the Yogacara um, tradition, they talk about the, the, the teachings on the eight consciousnesses. And I, I have found that, Judson, to be one of the most compelling kind of uh, phenomenological descriptions of what's taking place here. I'm, I, it, it's one of the doctrinal templates for uh, things like lucid dreaming, because it's basically a very subtle, nuanced description of the dualistic mind. And in and, and that description... Um, it fits in just perfectly here. The, the bad boy consciousness is, is the seventh. And these consciousnesses, of course, are not you know, eight different minds or eight different consciousnesses. They're just eight different functions of consciousness. And the seventh consciousness, so to speak, is the bad boy. And, and the reason that ties in so beautifully here is that it is, in fact, 
that's the aspect of, of awareness mind, confused mind that is constantly flickering um, and appropriating experience back to self, um, back to some illusory home base. And, and so um, by again, exploring the meditative path, we can start to see this, just like you're saying, this kind of painful flickering, this painful referencing, this pinching that takes place every time we refer experience back to self. Um, and, so, and so maybe talk to us a little bit more about how this strange process um, becomes so addicting. Why, why, is it that, why is it that it feeds, I would say, the egoic agenda so successfully? I mean, what, what's going on there? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. So I think it goes back to what this process was set up for, and it was actually set up for survival. And in particular, it would, helps us survive by helping us remember where food is. So it helps us lay down what's described as context-dependent memories. So for example, you need a trigger a behavior and a reward for the necessary and sufficient components of reward-based learning. So if you see food, you eat the food, then your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. We use the same process to avoid danger. See danger, avoid danger, live to tell the tale or whatever. <laughs> so that reward-based learning process, is, there's, there's nothing in there about pleasure. <laughs> it's about survival. Now, the way that works with this dopamine spritz is it fires when we see something or learn something unexpected. So something that we hadn't, we didn't already know. So we see a food source and we hadn't known that food source before. So our brain fires off this dopamine and says, remember that. And then when we're hungry, it fires off a dopamine spritz in anticipation of receiving that reward. Not oh, when wow. we get it, but yeah. in anticipation of. And that anticipation gets us off the couch or out of the cave or whatever to say, go get the food. That driven quality, again, here this goes back to movement. That driven quality, there's nothing pleasurable about that. It's it it's restless, it's contracted, it says, you know, you're not satisfied, do something. Yet in modern day, you know, marketers are like, hey, we can actually use this to sell products. Yeah, no kidding. Huh? And so somewhere in history, that excited, driven, contracted quality of experience became equated with happiness. Good. It moved from eudaimonia, you know, which yep. is the peaceful quality of existence to this driven uh you know, movement quality. And somebody slapped a label on that and said, that's happiness, you know, anticipating a kiss, that's happiness. Getting on a roller coaster, you know, that's happiness. <laughs> but really it's just a survival mechanism. And we see this in modern day, you know, we, we learn to eat food when we're stressed or anxious, not when we're hungry. We learn to look at cute pictures of puppies on Instagram when we're bored as compared to getting curious and exploring what boredom feels like itself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and what I flash on here, Jez, is that several things. One is this kind of foundational um, evolutionary mechanism that really is essential for um, our development you know, to the point where we can actually evolve to question um, things like this. To me, what I, what I flash on, I'm wondering how this lands with you, is that we have this kind of biological imperative to uh, obviously attain food, to protect form. I want to return to that in just a second. 
But what, what I flash on here is that then what happens is this, this um, notion of food itself becomes a kind of um, archetype where now what we're doing is it's not just biological um, satisfaction, urges of satiation, you know, satisfying through um, literally ingestion of, of, of food of, of, um, to keep our bodies alive, but food occurs in so many different forms, you know, mm -hmm. and that basically um, entertainment is a, is a type of food. Distraction is a type of food. Yeah. And in this case, getting in this a bunch case, of likes on Instagram is a type yeah, of food. Yeah, exactly. And, and so what happens is, you know, we're in a certain way, this, this, and this, I think this is super important to understand because what I do is I riff on the same thing from an integral perspective when I talk about things like fear, that, that fear is a very, very sound biological evolutionary um, kind of imperative that keeps us alive, protects form. But at a certain point, when you want to go from form to formless, the very fear that got us through this evolutionary point now starts to retard. Evolution transforms into devolution. So to me, doesn't it make sense to say that this idea of food, therefore, can be applied to anything that at this point feeds the ego. And, and I would say that this would be the basis of the obesity epidemic, that we're actually eating the menu instead of the meal, we're, we're running after substitute gratifications instead of the real thing, and therefore we get this wildly consumeristic culture that basically is devouring the world's natural resources and fundamentally destroying it. So do you think it's fair to make that type of extrapolation um, to... Yes, and I would add that never before in history have we been able to engineer and refine substances and experiences in, this, in the way that we know, because we know how this process works, so this can yeah. be exploited. So, you know, coca leaves, not addictive. Cocaine, very addictive. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, social media has engineered, you know, and Facebook didn't really take off until they introduced the like button. You know, it was it was growing, but it started growing exponentially when everybody got addicted because of the likes. So those are just a couple of examples. But I think the you know the obesity epidemic is a great one because we see how food has been consistently engineered to have that perfect balance of fat and sugar and salt to get people craving more as compared to providing the calories that that they need. And then so how, maybe this is where we can return to functional decoupling. So talk to us then a little bit more about with the armamentarium of meditation and what you've discovered in your lab, um, how can we now most effectively work with these cravings, with these urges? Yeah, so let's start with the neurobiology and then get practical. So neurobiologically, what we find consistently with across all meditation traditions that we've studied is that the default mode network gets quiet, gets deactivated with meditation. And so in essence, we're, we're letting go, we're getting out of our own way. And experientially, that is described commonly. I would say the most common language that I've found is just opening. So I love your yeah. definition of meditation, habituation to openness, if I got that right. Yep. Because opening you know, if, if we open and open and open and we start to lose that sense of where we end and the rest of the universe begins, then we move into non-duality. Or mm -hmm. if you want to 
talk psychological terms, this is what Csikszentmihalyi described as flow, you know, selfless, it's effortless, you know, basically resting in awareness. So with meditation, we see a nice correlation with brain mechanisms in terms of, you know, quieting the default mode network, which you know, is correlate of the self-referential processing. And experientially, if we take a habit perspective or a addictions perspective, awareness itself can help us dial into our direct experience and use it as feedback. So we as humans learn best from feedback. If we notice what it feels like to be contracted or closed down, and importantly, we need to compare that to something else because our brains don't just change behavior you know, we don't change behavior without a comparison. Our brains are, there's actually a whole network of brain regions. Uh, one of the hubs of that is the orbitofrontal cortex that kind of determines and stores reward value. Right. I think of it as the BBO part of the brain. It's always looking yeah. for the bigger, better offer. So if we, if all we know is the contraction of excitement, and we think of that as our highest level of happiness, we're never going to change. But if we bring awareness and we use meditation or just awareness to notice, oh, what are the subtle aspects of, of closed downness or contraction? And then we can compare that to openness, whether we're yeah. practicing loving kindness or compassion or simply resting in awareness or we're tr fully concentrated even on an object. That gives us that bigger, better offer because it feels better when we're more open, when we're out of our own way. So in that sense, it helps us you know, that awareness helps us move from closed to open and repeat that process every time we can directly dial in and see the cause and effect relationship. And we've even tested this clinically. We, you know, we started developing mindfulness training for habit change, like with smoking. So we did our first study with smoking cessation. We got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know? wow. And then we said, um, you know, had this realization that people don't learn to be addicted in my office, you know, in their, in their physicians or their therapist's office. So we said, well, can we actually use this in a way that's more helpful for them people learn things in context that so we can bring this to, can we bring this to context so about five years ago we started developing app-based mindfulness training programs and specifically developed one for eating to help people recognize what it feels like when they overeat what it feels like when they eat a bunch of junk food and what it also feels like what that freedom feels like when they naturally stop when they're full and we got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating. We published a paper on that a couple of years ago with our, our app called Eat Right Now. And so here we see this, this stepwise process where people start to be able to map out these habit loops and then start to really see clearly what the non-reward is from being closed down so that they become disenchanted. And in Theravada Buddhism, they talk a lot about you know, exploring gratification to its end. Right. Once that's explored, we become disenchanted because we see you know, there's no juice in that thing anymore. And then we can start to compare that to awareness practices. And that bigger, better offer naturally leads us toward those. Uh, we even did a focus group with one of our, with one of our eating 
uh, groups and, you know, had them define for us what this process was. And this last part of the process they described as basically the, um, <laughs> it's, it's amazing, freedom of choice that emerges uh, out of out of embodied awareness. Beautiful. And so there's this effortless quality of experience that naturally, where they naturally start to move away from old behaviors. I'll, I'll give you a concrete example. Somebody in our program, in our Eat Right Now program had said, you know, that she was on the phone with somebody and was was angry and she got, she borrowed money from her son, got in the car, drove to McDonald's. She got into the parking lot and she stopped and said, what am I going to get from this, right? Dialing into our previous experience. And she's like, I'm eating because I'm going to eat because I'm angry. <laughs> and yeah. in that moment, the bubble popped, you know, and she woke up, she became lucid, so to speak. Yep. And she realized exactly. I'm not going to get anything from this. And she turned around and went home and she said it was completely effortless. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that's fantastic. And that is exactly the way this ties into what we're exploring with dreams. Again, we're just using dreams as a way to study the nature of, of mind altogether. Several things came to mind here, Jensen, that, that I think um, I love to bounce off of you. One is I, I reflected on this maxim that I came up a little while back that very often we, we confuse the satisfaction of craving. We confuse the satisfaction of desire with its temporary transcendence. In other words, we, we think we're happy when we get what we want, but fundamentally, what's happening is we're we're happy when we stop wanting. And so, yeah. th so you know, this is what what I mentioned earlier. Now we start, you know, we're no longer eating the menu. We're we're really looking at what it is. It's no longer a substitute gratification. Now we're looking at the actual mechanics behind the process. And just like this person who went to McDonald's and, and was realizing, okay, what am I fundamentally really after? And so, this is also a type of bardo yoga. A, 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 a gap practice where understanding this in this kind of really elegant um, scientific phenomenological map empowers us to, to hit the pause button where we are going along swept up in the continuum. We're completely non-lucid to experience, um, caught up in our habits. And of course, habit is just a Western word for karma. And then all of a sudden something will ping into our awareness where we actually hit the pause button, we stop, and we realize, okay, wait a second here. What am I fundamentally really after? And then to me, um, Judson, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this. The fundamental gift of these um, awareness practices, in my experience, um, is that fundamentally, if you take them to their completion, it's it profoundly liberating and really, in the deepest sense, detoxifying from our addictions to um, form to materialism to movement, all the things we're talking about is that these practices eventually allow you to discover that awareness will come to prefer itself over any external object, over any substitute. And therefore, I mean, wow, does this like bankrupt the entire Western <laughs> materialistic agenda? I mean, yeah. what what does this do to the samsaric way of life? Um, so does this speak to you? Is this what you've experienced as well? Yeah, it doesn't get sweeter than awareness if you're looking for reward. You know, it's, there's nothing more delicious that I've found. And so our brains are naturally going to incline in that direction, especially as awareness refines and refines and refines. And we start to see these very, very subtle levels of clinging or contraction or closed downness that, that we haven't you know, noticed before. 
And so each time it's, it's an affirmation that keeps moving us in the direction of just, you know, just awareness, just resting in awareness and letting everything else take care of itself. Absolutely. I mean, as you know, in the non-dual traditions, that's, this goes even deeper when they say, and even I think more painful once you understand that fundamentally that's all there is. I mean, what we know, what we impute project to be reified form, i.e. matter and, and its you know, infinite varieties from the non-dual traditions, their assertion fundamentally is there is nothing but awareness and that we, we quite literally mistake um, what you could say really is frozen light form um, as being truly existent, fundamentally real, and therefore, you know, we continue to be sucked out of ourselves and swept away. But this is the great gift. And you mentioned these non-dual traditions. So I'm curious what, what traffic you've had with those and if they've informed you in this kind of more foundational trajectory. Yes. So I'll say two things there. One is if you think about this myth of existence, we tend, you know, the, the latest neuroscience seems to continually be confirming that we are constantly confabulating. <laughs> you know, okay. so awareness, consciousness is about half, up to half a second behind yeah. the brain. Living in the, living in the past, exactly. Yeah, and so we're we're just basically making a story up about what's happening and thinking that we're in control and doing something. <laughs> so, that and the extreme version of that is if you've been around anybody that has Alzheimer's disease, you know, and we're like, oh, that person's sick. Well, fundamentally, we're all <laughs> we're right. all sick. It's just that it's more obvious there because they're making shit up that doesn't even fit with our, uh, let's say, our, you know, our consensual confabulation around reality. So that's yeah. one piece. And I, the second piece I was going to mention is that we've done some work with Dan Brown, who oh, yeah. teaches in the Tibetan tradition. Yeah, Mahamudra, you bet. Yeah. And so we just uh, published a paper with him. Uh, where we studied some of his more experienced meditators going up through, you know, four stages basically into Rigpa and yep. looking at their brains as they were doing that and and found that the posterior cingulate was getting quieter and quieter as they went. And so there's, you know, I think it fits nicely with this this concept of of opening and opening and opening as we move into that stillness, you know, where, where there's not even any, he describes it as particularization, you know, it's like the later stage where there's not even any little movement toward, you know, this or that. It's just this, this wide open resting in awareness. Which is, which is the, the great release. I mean, this kind of spiritual orgasm that we're truly after I, I i mean release of any attachment to to form to movement anything that would otherwise pull us away from the state i mean that's really what i would argue i want to say two things here justin and see if, if this also resonates with you we keep talking about the default mode network and the posterior cingulate cortex would would you go so far as to say um, that these are the neurological correlates to what we talk about in spiritual parlance as ego. I mean, can you go so far as to say that that comprises what we know as the sense of self altogether, or is it more complicated than that? It's it's more complicated, but it's a nice approximation. You know, if we we like to point to things in the brain or networks in the brain and say, oh, that's you know, that's this, but it it it's always an approximation and it's always more complex. But I think it 
from a pragmatic standpoint, it's useful in terms of helping point out neural correlates of closed versus open. Yeah, exactly. And so we could think of the ego, you know, anytime the ego is threatened, we're, we get closed. <laughs> and anytime we let go of the ego, we open. And so it, it lines up neurologically with that, that pragmatic manifestation of ego. Yeah. And to me, when I think about this, it, it, it's like the ultimate pisser because I, I want to see how this lands with you is that this sense of craving, this, you know, fundamental addiction, um, to me, it would seem that that's driven by this underlying sense. And maybe this, this goes without saying, but I think it's worth saying because to me, this is really the crux of the matter, just to circle back to it, is that we crave because we we feel empty. We feel that there's something missing and, and we don't know quite what that is. We've never really examined the issue. Um, we just look at what everybody else around us. And this is where the issue, the, the topic becomes social and cultural, not just phenomenological. Um, everybody around us seems to satisfy this itch by acquisition of various um, forms. And so I think what these meditative traditions have done certainly for me is that yes, the fundamental idea that there is something missing is probably quite true, but what's missing is not out there. We're, we're MIA, we're, we're the ones that have gone AWOL on reality. And, and therefore when we contract away, we're um, going in the opposite direction that what we really wanna do to satisfy this itch is to realize that it can only be satisfied if we look within. Um, this kind of uh, meditative quality, interoception, um, whatever you all call it, that the uh, fundamental um, itch can only be scratched, you could almost say by not scratching, by just allowing um, the experience to be as it is, to discover that we are the ones that are responsible for our suffering and our happiness, and that fundamentally to achieve what we're really looking for, we simply have to open, there's that word again, relax, mm -hmm. and then it's fundamentally complete. It's already here fully present right here, right now. Yes, and it's interesting. We wrote a paper a couple of years ago lining up dependent origination with operant conditioning, showing that the ancient Buddhist psychologist had uh, actually discovered this process before paper was even invented. <laughs> Modern-day wow. psychologists, you know, rediscovered it, so to speak. But at the top of this, you know, in, in Theravada Buddhism, it's 12 links or 12 steps. And in these 12 links, the top, the first link, of course, it's a circle, but the first link is ignorance. And I think that relates very nicely to what you're talking about is if we, you know, if it's poison ivy and we scratch it and we're getting this brief relief, but it's actually spreading the poison, we're not doing ourselves any favors there. But until we realize, oh, I'm actually just making this worse, we're going to keep scratching. And so this is where, you know, we end ignorance and we see, oh, by repeating this behavior, I'm actually keeping myself in this samsaric existence, this endless wandering. And in essence, every time we scratch the itch, whether it's smoking a cigarette, looking at social media or eating the junk food, we're just perpetuating that process, whether it's in, and our identification with it. Oh, I eat junk food or I smoke cigarettes or, you know, I, 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 yeah. whether it's consciously or unconsciously. And it's only when we can really see clearly. And I would say, you know, 
again, meditative practices can help us really start to see this cause and effect relationship. And it's really not until we see so clearly that every time we do X and it leads to Y and it makes things worse, only when we see that will we start to change, will we become disenchanted. And that's, I, I would say, one of the fundamental reasons that we really bring awareness to our, your, our experience, whether it's our mental experience or physical experience or whatever. Yeah, no kidding. And to me, I've always maintained that the, the 12 steps of dependent origination, sometimes it's referred to as the you know intellectual content of enlightenment. This is what the Buddha discovered on the night of his awakening. And to me, it's like a 12-step detox program. <laughs> and and what, I, what I find really interesting here, Judson, is that um, you know, the, the 12 Nadan is the 12 links of dependent origination. Ignorance is the first, but it also exists in, in, in the past. And so in the breakdown of the 12 Nadanas, ignorance is functioning in the past. Applied ignorance is the seventh Nadana, which is craving. That's where mm. it gets super interesting to me. Mm. So ignorance itself is a backstage mind um, functioning in the past. Um, coloring, obviously, everything that arises in the next 11 links. But applied ignorance is, in fact, craving. And that's the seventh one. And that's where, in the circle itself, that's one of the sweet spots for liberation. Because mm -hmm. it's very difficult once the chain is activated just through, you could say, the velocity of the links of dependent origination up to seven but at number seven, we have in exactly the way that your work is substantiating so beautifully, we have the ability to hit the pause button to say, wait a second, I'm feeling this urge. Now what? Do I capitulate to it like the person in um, the McDonald's lot or like everybody else before they reach 4X, whatever the substance might be? Or do I, in fact, I feel that urge relate to it instead of from it and therefore um, really step off the wheel of conditioned existence altogether. I mean, is that what your research would support? Yes. And I would say we can't force ourselves to step off the wheel. So here, and we do this with our Eat Right Now program. We even do this with our Unwinding Anxiety program. So we have this app-based training for helping people with anxiety. Uh, and we're doing a study right now with sleep, actually. <laughs> People really get stuck yeah because they can't get to sleep when they're anxious and they start worrying they're not getting to sleep and so they, they drive the process even more uh so with that until people really truly know in their bones yeah that the behavior you know that scratching that itch isn't helping they're they're just going to be in self-restraint mode and and willpower you know is more myth than muscle doesn't work backfires, all this stuff. So we, if you look at craving, the next step, upadana, if you think of that yep. as clinging, or another translation is fuel. Mm -hmm. So if you stop fueling the fire of craving, it doesn't feed into the next round. You know, it starts to die down as that fuel is, residual fuel is consumed. And so it can be really helpful to really, you know, what we say to people in our Eat Right Now program is, you want to eat, go eat, but just pay attention as you do. Mm -hmm. in, in our Craving to Quit program, you want to smoke, smoke, but pay attention as you do. And we're doing studies right now to look at how long it takes for someone to become disenchanted as they bring awareness to the behavior. So not to try to forcibly 
change that relationship to craving, but to naturally incline the mind that when craving comes up, their mind says, well, I see this craving, but why the hell would I act on it? Last time it didn't get me anywhere. Yeah. So it's that next step of like going forward with the process, but with full conscious awareness and, and curiosity in particular, like, oh, what is this? What, what do I get from this? So that then it feeds back. And the next time they have a craving, they're disenchanted. They're like, why would I do this? Didn't, didn't, you know, didn't do it for me last time. Yeah. So really it, it's the cultivation of this overall heightened sense of awareness to, to realize, you know, I've seen this movie before. <laughs> How many yes. times do I have? How many times do I have to watch this rerun? I, mean, I know how it, it ends. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, 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 isn't that really? It's the, not a happy ending. Exactly. <laughs> it's a tragedy. Well, that's and of course that's the twelfth Madonna, right? Which is death. I mean, so there is there is no happy ending, and, and so, I mean, this way, otherwise what? This is the the moment to moment um, reiteration of of the recycling of samsara. I mean, this is this is how we tend to think that samsara is this kind of vague metaphysical um kind of process but but no, the it's very pragmatic it, it isn't is it very pragmatic it, it's happening moment to moment i mean we're yeah. we're taking we're taking rebirth and voluntarily again based on the the very forces of the dark side the forces of karma the forces of habit um and so we're feeding into the the rebirth cycle whether we know it or not just by capitulating to these processes and so that's the great gift of what you're doing is allowing people to bring these otherwise unconscious processes into the light of consciousness or in our jargon bringing non-lucid processes into the light of lucidity where therefore on the spot we can become lucid we can wake up and say hey wait a second i i don't have to get swept away with this i don't have to get sucked into this thing i don't need to get hooked and therefore on the spot we have the ability to realize the you know really nirvana we have the ability to to open to that moment to moment to moment you know the ultimate completion, of course, the stabilization, that's what we call the fruition of the spiritual path. But isn't it true that it's exercised every single time we realize this fist and, and replace it with an open palm? Um, every time we realize this contraction and we breathe into it and allow ourselves to open. Yeah, yeah. And I would say even if we're contracted, not to try to change the contraction, but just really bow to it as a teacher and say, oh. How painful is contraction? How painful is it feeling closed down? So that we can really learn from that moment rather than, you know, because there can even be spiritual bypassing where we, you know, we say, oh, I'm, I'm all frustrated or contracted. I'm just going to breathe and I'm, you know, I'm going to go over here to my happy meditation place. But we've just missed an opportunity to learn how our mind works and an opportunity to really rub our nose in contraction. And yeah, that beautiful. can be as informative or even more informative than, you know, being able to shift into openness. Yeah, it's, it's actually in the spirit. This is so great. It's actually in the spirit of, of what the Mahamudra traditions, a little known set of practices that I work a lot with in my, in my death programs is called reverse meditations, where what you do is you actually, it's called reverse for two reasons. One is you reverse your relationship to these types of experiences, mostly unwanted, um, um, by going directly into them, do the opposite of what you would normally do. And they're also called reverse because they're usually what we think of as is almost even anti-spiritual or anti-meditative. But the, the quote that came to mind here, Judson, was what the famous one-liner from Trungpa Rinpoche when he said, you know, there is no way out 
The magic is to discover that there is a way in. And so if we can find our way in, armed again with this right view, that's that's the beauty of the work that you're doing, is, is you're giving people the strength of this view backed by hardcore Western science informed by Western um, wisdom traditions that says, you know what, I, I, I can do this. I have the wherewithal to hold my seat, to go into what I would normally run away from and actually find liberation within and not without, which again is, is, is also circling back to what we were talking about earlier, that everything we want or could possibly want is already here right on the spot. And that, that includes what we would call so-called unwanted experience, whether it's craving, pain, um, addiction. If we, if we look underneath the hood, we realize that within that is, is the very seed of what we're looking for. We don't have to get away from it. We just have to get into it properly. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this question. If, if something provides a nugget of knowledge or wisdom, is that unwanted? If something provides a nugget of knowledge or wisdom, yeah. is that unwanted? Yeah. Uh, well, I would, say, I would say it's wanted because we're going to learn something. Absolutely. And so well, in that in that sense, what is unwanted? Anything? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want it all because I want to learn, you know? That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's, and that's what, oh, that's beautiful. I mean, that's what they say in the non-dual traditions. It's just so powerful to me. It's, it's also the basis of, of um, alchemy and tantra where, you know, there is no negative emotion. There, there is no ignorance. There's only partial knowing. And, and so, you know, there is no darkness within, there's only light unseen is one of my favorite ones. And so everything then becomes a teachable moment because again, Trungpa Rinpoche once said, there's no such thing as an incomplete or underdeveloped um, moment. I mean, everything is already there. We just have to know how to look to find it and drop storylines, the narratives of, of the default mode network and others that would, that would otherwise um, presume to inform us that that's not what you really want, that you know you have to find something else outside of what's fully available. And so this is, again, is beautiful about what you're doing, joining it, especially with a non-dual approach, that if we reverse our relationship to addiction, reverse our relationship to craving, to unwanted experience, we go directly into it. And again, be in, the, in the spirit of, of being just being interested, being curious, you know, what what is it made of? What What is this addiction sense altogether. Let's find out where am I feeling it in my body? Where, where is it really operative? And then I think almost like pulling the curtain back in the Wizard of Oz, you realize there's not a lot of teeth behind it outside of the teeth that we bring to it. I mean, we're the ones that I think unwittingly empower these things through our non-lucidity. Non That's the real pisser, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. And in that sense, you know, there's no such thing as one step forward, two steps backwards. It's every step is forward if we're bringing yeah. awareness. Yeah, that's fantastic. So as we start to um, close this up, uh, Jensen, I, oh my gosh, I wish we had more time. I feel like we're just barely scratching the surface here. How has this, uh, before I allow people to be introduced to your work and some of the amazing apps that you're putting out there, how has this work, I'm always very interested with scientists how their work informs and transforms them. So how has your research um, affected your life and your practice personally? <laughs> That's a great question. So I didn't actually start researching this until I had practiced for 10 years myself. And I 
consider that a great gift because I didn't really think about researching and I was doing molecular biology research and studying, you know, why we get sick when we get stressed and things like that. And it was a real opportunity to really dive in experientially and see what this stuff was so I could get my own direct experience. And after that, retooled to learn clinical studies, neuroimaging and all this stuff to, to do the you know, current, I guess, last 15 or so years of research that we've been doing uh, with mindfulness. And I would say it's the two are now so intertwined, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to separate them. But I can say, you know, when we were doing some of the neuroimaging work, the uh, it was very confirmatory with with practice in terms of seeing, you know, my I would have to pilot out all of our studies. <laughs> so, so when we were doing neurofeedback in our fMRI scanner, you know, I was in the scanner a lot, you know, testing it out and practicing. And I could, you know, to see the direct correlations between my brain activity dropping and that feeling of openness uh, was was confirmatory for practice and also helped, you know, guide my conceptualization that then, you know, I think concepts in the service of wisdom. Hmm. But also practice wise, you know, just having concepts in mind around reward-based learning or dependent, like the reward-based learning piece, when I really understood that, it really helped me understand what the heck dependent origination was. Cause I could, yeah. you know, it was a list of 12 things that I couldn't make sense of right. until I started seeing in my clinic, my patients acting this stuff out in, you know, with, with their addictive processes or looking at my own addictions. That's why I could write a whole book cause I had plenty of them. <laughs> uh, so the concept, the concepts from the science really helped me be able to name what my experience was and map it out much more effectively and clearly, and then inform uh, treatment and treatment development. You know, like our anxiety program. We just did a study with anxious physicians, and we got a fifty-seven percent reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores. So, like, oh, wow. there's there's something oh. to this stuff. Yeah, uh, that that really, you know, we can get at the essence of it and follow the science. And, you know, for example, um, we found in one of our studies that the informal practices were moderating the effects more than our formal practices. And so we actually designed the app-based trainings to start with informal practice, which is very much follows the Tibetan traditions, you know, yeah. short moments many times. Yep. You know, that's how we map out our minds. That's how we start to yep. see the cause and effect relationship in real time. And that's how we can start to break these bad habits. Yeah, and it also points out that this incredibly important maxim that that I think many people really don't understand is that we are whether we know it or not, we're always practicing, we're always meditating. You know, the the word in Tibetan, Judson, you probably know, it's a really provocative word for for meditation is transliterated gom, G O M, mm -hmm. uh, means to become familiar with. Mm -hmm. And the implications are quite compelling. We're we're either always becoming familiar with almost by default um, with mindfulness or mindlessness, lucidity, non-lucidity, openness or contraction, whatever term you want to put to it. But to me, it, what you just nailed on here is so important is that this just didn't happen by accident. We, we are so proficient in the art, the perverse art of mindlessness, non-lucidity and contraction because we unwittingly practice it all the time. That, <laughs> that's the real kicker. 
Um, and then by just like everything that your work is doing, by bringing those processes into the light of awareness, we can say, hey, wait a second. Oh my gosh, first of all, there's a sense of humor. Uh, wow, look how good I am at, at being so contracted. It's the <laughs> byproduct of all my practice. And so yeah. instead of tying ourselves into that, we can say, oh my gosh, look at, I'm, I'm a Vladimir Horowitz, you know, the Yasha Heifetz of contraction because I practice it all the time. And then, and then now you get that, okay, little patience, a little humor. It's going to take a while to turn around. Repetition got me here. Repetition is going to get me out. So yeah. talk to us, talk to us about that. for him virtuoso. <laughs> yes, is it? Is it? No, really. We're, we're suffering virtuosos because we, we practice it all the bloody time. And, you know, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. We don't even know that we don't know. That's, yeah. real, that's real default mode network. That's yes. real. That's yes. real non-lucidity. <laughs> the unknown unknowns. And then when they become known unknowns, we can't go back because right. we just, we see, oh, this is just too painful. That's exactly right. So tell us a little bit as we wind down here, how, I mean, you, you've got some of the most impressive apps that I have seen. Um, and this idea of short sessions repeated frequently, by the way, as you know, that's a central teaching in both Mahamudra and Dzogchen that, that uh, these short sessions are just as powerful uh, if they're repeated frequently as longer meditation sessions. And so what you're doing that is so brilliant is, is taking the very, it's a kind of a Taoist approach, you know, taking the, the very seeds of the dark age, which are these, you know, we weapons of mass distraction, our iPhones, <laughs> everything else. <Yes. laughs> and, that, and really transforming them into weapons of wisdom, weapons yeah. of lucidity. So talk to us about the, the really brilliant work that you're doing with your apps and how people can learn about those and connect with those because those are really impressive um, projects. Yeah. So we've been working on this for about 10 years now and really, you know, in short, we've taken the manualized evidence-based training and cut it into bite-sized pieces and are delivering it pe to people at context. So, you know, it's like 10 minutes of training a day where we give them 30 core modules and then theme weeks on top of that, where they can really dive into understanding how their mind works. And once they understand how it works, then they can work with it. And as I mentioned, you know, our clinical studies are showing 40% reduction in craving related eating with our Eat Right Now program. We're getting, a, you know, close to a 60% reduction in anxiety with our Unwinding Anxiety program. So we're, you know, in a nutshell, can provide some you know some of the basic core trainings in a through a weapon of mass distraction uh, through an app yeah amazing yeah and so and, and what do you have on the horizon um that people can look forward to that we can look forward to do you have other um popular books because i know the, the majority <laughs> of your publications are these incredibly rigorous scientific papers many of which i've read by the way but what else do you have cooking that we can learn about that we can look forward to it, yeah, so I've put together a, a free online course uh, for folks that don't like to read books or don't have time. Uh, it's on my website, drjud.com, totally self-referential, drjud.com, um, especially for healthcare providers that want to kind of understand how habits are formed, what the state of the art of mindfulness is. Um, we even have a couple of modules in there around resilience because there's an there's an epidemic of burnout <laughs> in healthcare providers. So, um, you know, that's one thing that I've, I just launched and you know, it's free. Anybody can take it. I, I think it's going to be a few more years before I write another book. It was, you know, my first book was probably about 20 years in the making. Uh, and 
I think with an N of one, I think the way that I tend to write books is do a bunch of work, really make sure that it's in my bones. And then at some point my body says, okay, this is ready to be born. And I wrote my last book in, in two weeks on a self retreat. So, um, yeah, cause it was just like, it just came out. I was and my instruction to myself was sit, walk, write, but only write when I'm in flow. And so as soon as I felt any close down or contraction, I would just stop writing and go back to sitting and walking. So I think a lot of the work with this openness and closed piece and how the reward-based learning piece fits in, that's probably what the next one is going to be, but it's going to be a little more time before we work out all the details. We really want to study this carefully in the lab and see how common the language is. My hope is it's a universal language so that it's accessible to everyone. They don't have to have some, you know, esoteric training or anything. We can all tap into the language and then we can all start orienting toward closed versus open and just training ourselves in awareness, whether it's through spiritual practices or or any other means so that we can all wake up. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's really one of the things that inspires me the most, my friend, is your um, incredible talents for translational research, um, where where you just don't take your stuff and leave it in the laboratory. You're, you're bringing it out into the world um, rather quickly and benefiting a tremendous. Um, oh, well, there's way too much suffering <laughs> in the world to have this stay in the ivory towers. So that's why you know that's why we created the apps. That's why I put this healthcare provider course together. So all of that, inf- all the information for the apps for my book for the provider courses on my on my website drjud.com if anybody wants to check it out yeah, um, yeah, yeah that's what I, I'm here for let's let's end the suffering thing yeah, no kidding <laughs> yeah it's, it's, that, that that's the only real gig in town isn't it and yes I, the only know, one worth, worth working for the only one worth working for yeah and so i do encourage listeners to um to check out judd's site and his apps they really are they're they're very sophisticated very practical ways to work with otherwise deep-seated intractable issues like addiction and the like. So, um, Jed, thank you so much, my friend, for taking time out of your very busy schedule to chat with us. I, you know, I could literally spend hours with you on this stuff. But, um, it was a delight. And I'm, yeah. anytime, let's, let's, <laughs> let's geek out anytime. This is Yeah, really- I love it. Yeah, let's do it again, because there really, there's, there's so much more we could talk about. But I think we hit on the, on the sweet spots. Um, I've, as, one certainly got a lot out of it and I'm deeply grateful for the work that you're doing. The world is a better place for it. And so um, let's definitely stay in touch and um, make another round of it. So thanks. Thanks for taking the time. Jennifer. All the best. Thank you. Take care. Bye.